Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. When Chelsea Handler was on this podcast earlier this year, she revealed that she was looking for a safe way to tape her new stand-up special. Now that that special is available to stream on HBO Max, we wanted to revisit the really fun conversation we had with her back in June. Chelsea and I talked a lot about her political awakening, which is also a big theme of the new special titled Evolution. In this clip, Chelsea picks up where she left off telling me about her major crush on New York governor, Andrew Cuomo. When he came on the scene, he looked like the Incredible Hulk also. You know, that big Italian gorilla is like, put on your mask. I'm like, oh, I'll put my mask on. Oh, yeah, I will. I'll put on my mask. He's the kind of asshole that I will do shit for. And you know he's an asshole. And that's what I like about him. Like an old-fashioned asshole. Somebody's going to tell me to sit down and shut up. I want him to flatten my curve, and then I want to flatten his curve. And then I want us to apex together. All right. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Chelsea Handler, and we'll be back with a very special Election Day episode next week. So I got to read your book pretty recently. I really enjoyed the book a lot. It's dedicated to your future husband, but I imagine it's it's not so easy to to date uh, in this in this time. How's that going? It's not easy to date, but for some reason, all these people around me have found girlfriends and boyfriends. Oh, really? Barnes. Yeah, my nephew was <laughs> seeing this girl uh, in LA when he was living here. My trainer, Ben Bruno, found a girlfriend, which is like a miracle in and of itself. Mm. And for it to happen during quarantine is another miracle. So that's like a miracle on top of a miracle. But yeah, people are hooking up during quarantine. <laughs> but not you? Uh, no, I haven't been hooking up. No, nothing <laughs> going on here. Not Unless you count Andrew Cuomo, but that's just online harassment. Oh yeah, I wanted to ask you about him because in the book, uh, Robert Mueller is your guy <laughs> yes, and exactly. and you you have a you know you have a big crush on him and I, you've talked about that before and I know you've moved on to Andrew Cuomo, <laughs> which I think is, we have a better shot with him, I think, right? He's single. Well, yeah, and he's like 62. So he's like, still has a few good years left. Yeah. You know, Robert Mueller was like, I think 73 or 75 or something. So he was a little bit too old. Yeah. I mean, even Andrew Cuomo is a little bit on the line for me, but mm-hmm. I, you know, you've got to admire what he stands for yeah. and everything he's done. Like he didn't just hit one home run, he hit two, you know, with police reform right mm-hmm. after it. He did the right thing. So it's nice to see somebody meeting moment in that way. You know, it's like, oh, wait, the old white guys can be cool. Let's not forget. Yeah. You know, let's let all the good ones come out and play now because white guys are kind of like out of style right now. So he hasn't responded to any of your advances though online? There have been some exchanges. Okay. 
All right. For like DMs or what, what are we talking no, about? No, 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 no. Nothing like that. <laughs> Way more professional. Oh, okay. Okay. Were you ultimately disappointed in Robert Mueller? I know a lot of people were. Totally. He, he didn't deliver in the way that, that a lot of people no. hoped. No, I mean, I fantasized about the things that I fantasized and I believed Robert Mueller was going to deliver. Even when people were like, listen, you know, they're forecasting that it wasn't going to be all that it was cracked up to be. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand my baby. I'm like, he's not going to disappoint us. I'm like, he's just too filled with, you know, valor to do that. And then I was just, ugh. And even though, you know, they, they, there was enough evidence if William Barr hadn't been in that position, if someone else had been in there, you know, somebody who cared about democracy, then obviously the outcome could have been different. But yeah, it was so disappointing. I mean, honest, I mean, he was going to be an American hero and then he wasn't. Yeah, yeah. The The book is really about your, a lot about your political awakening in some ways and, and sort of your shift in priorities from maybe celebrity culture to, you know, not caring as much about that and really... And really becoming an activist. And I think, you know, something we talked about a couple of times, I think, when you were doing the Netflix show. And so when did that kind of start for you when you started feeling like, you know what, I, I don't care as much about the things I used to care about and I'm starting to care about new things? I just got bored with my life. You know, I just got bored with everything. And I would say it wasn't even just a political awakening. It was just like an awakening, like, oh, I have to be better to the people around me. And that mm-hmm. involves being involved in politics. You know what I mean? It involves yeah. being involved in like standing up for something and, uh, you know, kind of using your platform for something other than self-promotion. Mm-hmm. So, it lo- so I, you know, I look at it that way and I look at it like it was just the election. Just I was already a little bit antsy and over what I was doing and kind of searching, you know, soul mm-hmm. searching but not deep enough to even be able to relate that, you know, or relay that to someone. I just was kind of angst ridden. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to therapy after Trump was elected, I had something to be angry about, you know, like yeah. then I was like, oh yeah, that asshole, this is what, oh. and you know, and then I went into therapy because I honestly felt like my life was, my anger was becoming unmanageable. Mm So talking to somebody about that and having them like take you back through your childhood was was an effort that I never thought I would have to make. Like I thought I was too smart to have to go to therapy. You know, Mm -hmm. like, no, no, I'm not like that. I'm I'm from New Jersey. I grew up with six kids. Like you don't understand my story. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing that you realize when you go to therapy and hopefully you realize at some point in your life is that all of our stories are intertwined. You know, it's not about me, me, my, my. Mm -hmm. I grew up for a long time feeling that way. You know, like my friends, my family, my world. And it's really about connecting to the world you're not naturally connected to. Yeah. And you also had the the sort of revelation in therapy about that a lot of it went back to your your brother who who passed when you were quite young. How did that kind of relate to to the other side of it, to the to the anger side of it? Well, because when you know when your anger is is covering up usually something else, which is hurt, you know, your, your anger is like your outside shell. And I was really good at that, you know, like projecting towards you know people and telling everybody what was wrong with them. It was easy, and I also made a living doing it because people thought it was funny. And you know, so it's just kind of stripping away the the pieces. And it's like, why are you so angry about Trump? What does Trump being elected represent to you? It's like, mm-hmm. oh, the world becoming, you know, unhinged is what Trump represented. When was the other time in my life I felt that way? When I was nine and my brother told me he was going to be right back and then went on a hiking trip and fell off a cliff and died. Mm-hmm. So that those two events are intertwined because it's when my life felt unmanageable. He took me back to my, my anger towards my brother for dying, my inability at the age of nine to understand that it was an accident instead of him lying to me. 
you know, the inability because your brain isn't sophisticated enough yet. So it was kind of like taking me through all of that grief that I hadn't allowed myself to go through. You know, I mean, it's the most unfun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Not hot. It's not sexy. It's like, ugh. you yeah. know, you're so sick of yourself mm-hmm. and you're so sick of your voice and you don't, you know, you're going to just go somewhere to be miserable for an hour and recall memories that are painful. But I got to tell you, like doing that, doing that, like feels I'm a completely different person now. Like I don't have the same temperament. I'm just so much more relaxed and calm. I mean, I'm stoned most of the time. (laughs) So that that plays into it. Yeah, that plays into it for sure. But in general, like if something doesn't go right or I can't turn my television on, I no longer have little fits, you know, and tantrums Mm -hmm. and that kind of behavior that I was really eager to get rid of. Yeah. So one of the the first big sort of activist moments that you had right after the election was the that women's march at Sundance, yeah, which I remember yeah. was was you know just a, such a big thing at the time. And I was looking back at it, and I realized reading about it that uh, Harvey Weinstein was in the march was in the part of the women's march at Sundance because this is oh. before everything kind of came out about him. And before the really the Me Too movement yeah, started in earnest. I bet he was at the Women's March. Yeah. Did you know that at the time that he was yeah. there? Oh. And... oh, I don't know. Maybe maybe I did. Yeah. I don't remember seeing him. But he's probably, he's always at Sundance, so I'm sure he was there. But yeah. 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 That's, That's great. That's just crazy that, I mean, just that to think about how much has changed in the in the years since, I guess, is that's just one small thing that he could be there and that no everyone, no one thought twice about it. I know. I know. I mean, that's, I know now you can't like, I mean, you think about Harvey Weinstein now, I mean, the whole movement, I think woke so many people up, including women, you know, women who mm. had it. I didn't think that was as prevalent as it was. I didn't know that that was as common as it was. That didn't happen. That hasn't happened to me. My yeah. friend Mary's always like, of course it's happened to you. You don't even realize it. And I'm like, yeah, well that may be true, but I, yeah, I didn't realize it if it did happen. Mm-hmm. And then, so not, too long after that, or, or a few months after that, you announced that you were ending your your Netflix show. And I was really interested in that at the time, just because, you know, it, it really, you announced it and said, you know, I'm ending this show to focus on me- more meaningful things, more, you know, change and, and political activism. So can you just talk about what that decision meant for you at the time? Was it was it your decision to do that? And, and why did you make it? Well, we had, yeah, my contract was up. It was in my third year there because I did my documentaries and then I was supposed to do two two years of that show. And it wasn't wasn't some big runaway hit and it wasn't making me happy. And I was so upset about the Trump thing that it was just like a thing. That's all I cared about. You know, I'd go into work and be on MSNBC. I was just like raging with Mm -hmm. it. You know, it was like those first six months of this presidency. It's like, I need my life back. You know, after that, I was like, I can't go on like this. So it was just a culmination of all of those things. And I was like, okay, okay, well, this this makes more sense. And I wanted to go around the country and like not be called an elitist and actually know what the hell I was talking about when I was talking about politics and political things. And when I was talking about elections and candidates, I really wanted to understand what the fuck I was talking about. And mm-hmm. I had the luxury to be able to do like a small speaking tour through colleges and through like, you know, red parts of our country to have open conversations. And it was eye-opening and I did learn a lot and it helped me understand activism better. Yeah, I mean, it seems like those documentaries that you made that you really got a lot out of it and you could just tell watching them that that it was maybe was that work more meaningful to you than 
than talk show, than hosting a talk show? Yeah. I mean, I love the documentaries. I got to do this, you know, Hello Privilege. It's me, Chelsea, which came out last year on Netflix, which was my last project I did at Netflix. And um, that was a really meaningful project. I mean, we're we're actually talking about releasing more scenes now because that was for white people about white privilege. Like I wanted to understand and examine the subject of white privilege because I always thought it was one thing. You know, I thought it was like, oh, families that go to Harvard, Yale or like Rockefellers or legacy see families like that was privilege. I didn't realize, oh, you don't have to be that one of those families to experience white privilege. So there's all these nuances and it's a broad spread and it's a long spectrum. And so that movie was like me asking, oh, what's my part in this? What's my, like, how much did this play into my success and my, and all everything. And it's like, it plays a lot into it. So it's a big wake up call at how kind of asleep at the wheel I I was. And, you know, here I am thinking I'm woke. It's like, no, no, you're not. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that, that movie, that documentary, documentary was really, especially feels ahead of its time now. And I, I really enjoyed it at the time and I actually rewatched it last week and just I got a lot out of it again. And I think seeing it in, a, in even a different light now in this moment, what did you learn about white privilege doing that, that you think maybe seems like a lot of other celebrities, especially are learning now and trying to communicate now? Well, what I learned for me personally was that it's always important to ask a question, you know, like, don't worry about being an idiot. Who cares? That's your ego. It doesn't matter if you're Mm -hmm. trying to get to the goodness of the situation. And let's just all be honest and like respectful. I learned a lot. I learned like, you know, I'm like a touchy feely person. And like, that's if, as, as far as the woman, the movement for men goes, like it applies to women too, Mm -hmm. but like women, I'm like carrying on like, Oh yeah, I can just touch, touch people. And this one black woman was like, you can't touch me like that. You know, Mm -hmm. she's like, you can't touch my body like that. Like, I'm not okay with it. You don't know my history, what I've been through, if I've been assaulted or whatever. And I'm like, what? you know, Im- immediately you're defensive because you're, you're like, my intention wasn't to assault you. It's not about your intention though. It's about the reception and your intention doesn't mean anything a lot mm. of the time. And we have to learn to accept that, you know? So I've learned all these things about communicating with people in a better, more honest way, not trying to virtue signal, but try to understand what you're saying, you know? I mean, it's all virtue signaling at some point, mm-hmm. but to really know what you're saying so you can direct conversations and have thought-provoking, meaningful interactions with people instead of just screaming and yelling, which is also a takeaway from my therapy, you know? I went in there and I was like, I want to be able to talk to Trump supporters without the veins throbbing out of my neck, you know? Mm -hmm. I need help. And it was was a lesson in diplomacy. Yeah. Do you feel like you've gotten to that point where you can talk to Trump supporters without going insane? Yeah. I mean, I'm better. I'm not, I'm not there yet. You know what I mean? It's, but it's, but I've made some improvements and I'm able to remain calm no matter pretty much what anyone says to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've made some improvements, but I still have a way to go. I love that you include some of that really personal stuff in there too, about your own experience and that the story about your um, boyfriend when you were a teenager who was black and how differently his life ended up going from yours. Why did you want to include that? And was that scary to to really to make it personal in that way? Uh, I did not want to include that. I never want to include my ex-boyfriends, but somehow <laughs> I always agree to it. Every single time it comes up, I'm like, no, luckily I'm out of ex-boyfriends. So none, uh, none there are none to, left to be on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, she, my director, Alex Stapleton, 
it was her idea. And she really, she took me through my history of, uh, you know, my experience with black people. And if I grew up with them and who did how many black people went to my high school. And so I kind of had split my high school years. And the second part of my high school years, I was exposed to a whole different kind of culture. And I dated this black guy for two years, Tyshawn. And I got pregnant twice with him. He was a drug dealer. I lived like with him. I just like left my family. I was completely out of control. And eventually my family was like, you have to come home now. So I told her that story and she's like, what? You know, I can't believe you haven't told me that. And I was like, well, that hasn't come up. Like that I dated a black drug dealer when I was 16 to 18. She's like, it's relevant to this story. Cause I told her, oh, we had both gotten stopped for like dime bags of marijuana, like twice. And both times they let me go. And both times they arrested him. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that interfered with his scholarship at college and he didn't go to college. Like once you get into that system, you don't come out. At the time I was young and stupid and I didn't really think about him or what what that meant and what the situation was. I just thought like, oh, I have a good personality. Cops like me. You know, I didn't, had no idea what how easy it is to get out of a situation if you're a white woman in this world, a crime situation that is. Anyway, so it was really nerve wracking to have to go and meet with him. I hadn't seen him since I was 17 years old, but it was really also heartwarming. Like as you could see on camera with his family, like it was just so sweet to see his mom and that she was clean and off drugs. Mm -hmm. And that I was part of their family was like, I just, it felt nice to be reminded of where I came from. I was always got, not able to skirt out of the trouble. That's right. Like, I remember getting pulled over like four or five times on my way home to the house. When I had been drinking, I had like five people in the car, and every single time I got through it. No, but you had the complexion for the connection. Wow, I was in some pretty hairy situations that I never, ever paid the price for. Never. Like I said, you know, I went that different way, and I'm glad it, it turned out the way it did with you. Thank you. The meeting when you when you see him for the first time, you caught that on camera. I mean, yeah, it must have been. Yeah. Did you feel at all weird about meeting him in that way and filming it? And was were they all yeah. cool with it? Yeah. And how? Always, I always feel weird about it. But then I'm always like, oh, I, I want to be open minded. I want to be fearless in what I do, no matter how it comes across. Like to have the guts to do something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because you can't fake that. So I wanted to just kind of like. I'm not going to say no to a challenge. And it wasn't a challenge. It was just me feeling my, you know, it's typical white guilt bullshit. <laughs> that was good that I had to go face him and be like, yeah, look at me and look at you. Like two completely different worlds now. Mm -hmm. And I think it does, it, it exemplifies that journey that you take in the documentary from the beginning where you're at that meeting with the students who are not thrilled with you in a lot of ways. And putting that in there was also, I think, brave to show the backlash that you can receive when you, you know, think you're doing something good, yeah. trying, trying to do something good. And, and I think that's obviously something you've probably dealt with throughout your career. And now, especially as you try to put something good out in the world and, and there's always people that are going to be upset about it. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, listen, that's, I, you just assume that. I mean, if everybody liked what you were doing, then how interesting would that be? <laughs> you know, you assume the bad is coming. So anything, any good that comes along with that is always just a bonus. Yeah. And I think uh, celebrities right now are dealing with that in, in, in an interesting way of facing their white privilege for the first time. You know, I'm thinking about Jimmy Fallon had to, you know, apologize for doing blackface on SNL a long time ago. And so I'm, I'm curious if you have any advice for people of sort of how to how to handle these situations and how to, um, you know, whether it's through social media or through what they say, what would you tell people? 
I mean, I think we all just have to be for also like forgive people for making mistakes, you know, mm-hmm. an apology. Yeah. Apologize right away. People are offended. We know now that it's not acceptable anymore. You know, we all apologize. We're all sorry for not knowing more sooner. Like, mm-hmm. why does it take, why did it take this long? I'm so disappointed in us that it took this long for us to get it together. If white kids were dying like that by police officers, like the police would have been reformed, disbanded everything years ago. So that's like a violation of human rights in our own country. Like, so uh, the anger, like what you're talking about in the documentary, filming that, the people's angry reaction towards me, Mm -hmm. I get that. I got that now, you know, that was something I didn't understand before filming. And then I got, oh, this is such like years and years and intergenerational like oppression. Mm -hmm. We've never allowed them to be people and we're all part of it. And that's the, you know, that's the worst news, but it's also the best news because that means we can make changes right away. Mm -hmm. I saw even, you know, just this week, you've gotten some backlash for posting that uh, Louis Farrakhan uh, video. Yes, yes. What's, what's your reaction to that? I mean, well, I thought his message was really powerful. You know, mm-hmm. I, I didn't, it wasn't thinking about the anti-Semitic thing, but I didn't want to take down the thing because I felt the message was powerful and every, you know, and a lot of people did. And mm-hmm. it was powerful for me, the way he spelled it out, you know, that, that black people are, don't have a history of killing white people. White mm-hmm. people have a history of killing black people for hundreds of of years. Forget about crime. Over and over again, we kill Black people in this country. Mm. So everyone needs to like remember where the violence came from. Yeah. It's not from the Black people. It's from the white people. So uh, I thought it was powerful. So whatever, you know, everybody can go fuck themselves. Coming up, Chelsea teases her new stand-up special, which will be premiering on HBO Max as soon as she figures out a way to shoot it safely. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So you also have, I just found out not too long ago that you have a stand-up special that just got announced um, oh, yeah. gonna, with HBO, HBO Max. Yeah, so that's exciting. Although yeah. who knows when you can perform live again. So what's the what's the deal there? Well, we're looking for outdoor spaces, you know, to oh. perform, to do the special. Um, like Dave Chappelle. Looking, yeah, that's perfect example of it because it's the safest way to shoot a special. Um, otherwise, it's limited capacity. You know, mm-hmm. obviously they're going to open up some places. We're actually talking to New York and New Jersey to see if I want to go home to do it as 
a reopening in August. I want to film mm-hmm. a special in August. So uh, I think I will shoot it this summer and I'll announce it like, you know, probably next month or at the end of this month if I end up shooting it in August. But yeah, I want to shoot it before the election and I want it out before the election because mm. it's it's just about changing your mindset and like putting your mind to better use. And it's all about waking up yeah. to life. Right. When you announced it, you said the quote was, I didn't want to return to stand up until I had something important to say. I do now. So so what do you what what is the important thing that you that you have to say now? The important thing to talk about is, first of all, taking stock of like your accountability, having self-awareness, dealing with any of your grief or your trauma, not putting it away and shoving it aside because it always comes back to bite you in the ass and doing it with humor and doing it, you know, with a smile when you have to and crying when you have to, but also getting to the other side and discovering how to be better at being a human being. And, you know, my unhealthy relationship with my dogs, my cleaning ladies and cannabis, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) sprinkled with all of the usual nonsense because that's always going to be who I am because I can't get my shit together. But I like to write about the true things that happened to me. Cause I mean, whether you like me or not, you, you, nobody can say that I'm a liar. Like I'm only always telling about my authentic experience. You know, mm-hmm. I'm oversharing people would argue. So the idea of writing this book and being able to overshare something that was so profound and meaningful to me was something I hadn't put out into the world yet. Like I was like, Oh, this is what it's, this is nice to do something that's well-meaning. <laughs> mm-hmm. How do you work on material when you can't get up on stage in front of people? Cause usually, you know, stand up. Are, are going out and doing clubs and, and trying to, to see what works in front of audiences? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's fine. I, I, you know, I was going to go on tour. Obviously, my tour has been canceled because mm-hmm. of Corona, but it's okay. I've done about 55 of the shows, so I'm ready to record it. I would just warm it up for a week at a comedy club or somewhere in the country that's open and safe. Yeah, I mean, you work, I, I'm, I have that set pretty kind of ready to rumble. So there's not much writing that needs to be done on it. After that, I'll start writing again again and move on to, I mean, people are going to be so COVIDed out by the fall that it's like, I don't even want to write during this time until I'm in a new phase of my life. You're not writing a bunch of coronavirus jokes. No, I'm not actually. No, I I spend every free moment I have reading because I know I'll never be able to have time like this to read. (laughs) Yeah. You really haven't done stand-up like this in a long time though. So how does it, how does it feel to be sort of on the precipice of of shooting a special? Oh, it's going to be the best thing I've ever done. I mean, it's so solid. I've never, I, first of all, I had never toured and not been like, you know, drinking during, I was, what during Mm. my tour or by the second show being like, you know, totally buzz. I never behaved myself. I had never like had a set list and did everything in the right order. I would just like go out there and do whatever I felt like. And sometimes that was great. And sometimes it wasn't. But this was like, I was super focused. I'm not partying like that anymore. Like I'm not going to go out, you know? So I was really focused on getting the message from the book onto, into a standup. Like once I saw what Nanette did mm-hmm. and Gatsby, yeah. I was like, oh, you can make standup have an arc like that. And I wanted to take the book and put that into a standup form. And I did. And it's, I think it's really powerful. And I feel like it's the extension of the book. It's the last kind of like, okay, let's put that down and then we'll move on to the next thing. Yeah. I mean, it does feel like the book 
is this most recent book is very different from your older books, which were more straight, you know, comedy. There is much more personal, much more intense stuff in this book. And I, I assume that that would be the same for the standup. Do you feel like that's a deliberate decision that you've gone in that direction of, of just getting more real with stuff, getting more personal, you know, not making it all just sort of jokes for, for joke's sake? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, yeah, I wanted to peel away like the layers, you know, you take off the veneer, you realize, oh, you were drinking so much when you were younger because it was like, you know, you were numbing and you're like, mm-hmm. I don't need that anymore. I, I've come face to face with my demons in a way, you know, I've like faced it. It's like, oh, that's not appealing to me anymore. So it's deeper, but it's much sharper. Like the comedy is so much to me funnier. Also as a comedian, having to take out all of my insensitive and racially insensitive jokes and and, and this person, whatever insensitive jokes, like you, you can't operate that way anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's even better. Your material's even stronger because you have to really, come up with clever stuff because you can't go to the bottom feeding stuff. And that's the way it should fucking be, you know, in my personal Do you feel like back in the day you would you would do that sort of lowest common denominator stuff or you would fall back on that or that it was that it was easy? Yeah, yeah. I think I don't think I challenged myself as a writer necessarily. I it was my personality was bigger than whatever I was saying anyway. You know mm. what I mean? So I just had a lot of misplaced confidence. So people were like, Oh, okay, great. But there's definitely an evolution. And now I'm sharp. It's like now I've got my mind on like straight. So what I'm saying I feel is more impactful. And it's like I feel like I have, you know, a special that has, it can be intensely emotional when I talk about the day my brother died mm-hmm. and, and it, but it ends with one of the most humiliating stories of my life on an airplane <laughs> with a man who was farting next to me for five hours. So it's, it goes in all different directions, but in the same time. So it's the true essence of who I've always been, but like a cut above, but yeah. holding on to the stuff that makes you, you. So I want to go back now uh, and just go through a couple of your earlier credits and see if there's a story or, or memory that, that pops to mind. So speaking of stand-up, do you remember your first time performing stand-up on television and what that was like? Oh, Jay Leno show. Yeah, I was yeah. on the Jay Leno show. Um, yeah, I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing this really bad coral stretchy top and I came out and did a monologue, but I had been on his show like five or six times as a correspondent. Oh, yeah. So they knew me. So I was kind of like getting in there. But they were so good to me at that show. I that was like I was on that show like twenty one times or something. Oh wow! And uh, yeah, I did it with him. I did stand up on the Jay Leno show, so that was the place to go at that time. Yeah, <laughs> I big deal. Saying that at that time, <laughs> I'm officially old. How did you? How did that first set go? The first time you performed, it was good. I think. Yeah, it was good. It went well, and then uh, I mean, Jay, Jay always was like, "You don't have to be so blue," you know, like. You don't- <laughs> And I was like, fuck you, Jay. Don't give me any advice. I don't want to be like you. Yeah. Well, then you ultimately had your own show, uh, your first show, Chelsea Lately. That was not the first show. show. Yeah. I had a show before that, the Chelsea Handler show on E. Mm -hmm. And that was like ran for one season. And then from that show, they turned, we decided to do Chelsea Lately instead. So like that show led to Chelsea Lately, but they were totally different. Um, And what, when you think about your time on Chelsea Lately, which was many years, uh, what, what stands out to you from that experience? I mean, this just, it must be kind of a blur in some ways, but. The sophomoric chicanery, just going in and in the morning, answering other people's emails. I go from desk to desk to desk and just write <laughs> terrible, completely inappropriate. If like, if I had a show today, first of all, it would have been taken away from me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have no, I am so, have no boundaries at work. We would play jokes on each other. I mean, we would walk 
walk around naked. We were out of control. It was like a, it was like a fraternity house. Mm-hmm. Towards the end, did you kind of clash with with E? And was it was it a difficult relationship towards the end? Well, I announced I was leaving. Like I think on the Howard Stern show, and so that. They didn't I like thought that. they knew I was done. <laughs> I thought I really did. And they were yeah. so pissed when they found out mm-hmm. that I said that because they thought I was doing it as a negotiating tactic. And I wasn't. I was done. And I was just telling people. Mm-hmm. But I did it. I should have told, obviously, should have told some people before I announced it on Howard Stern. But, you know, that's me. I, I, I just can't help myself. Yeah. And then there was your Netflix show, which I really enjoyed. And I, I just had uh, a couple months ago, had Fortune Feimster on this podcast. Oh, did talked, you? Yeah, and she's great. And we talked about... So I, I came to the show the night that uh, Ann Coulter was supposed to be on. And then she canceled the last minute. And I think that's why I was there. Like I was supposed to go cover what would happen when Ann Coulter went on your show. And then she canceled the last minute and Fortune came on as Ann Coulter, basically. So (laughs) what do you remember about that night? And what did you think at the time when when Ann Coulter canceled? Oh, I couldn't believe it. I was like, are you kidding? Is she scared of me? I'm like, (laughs) is Ann Coulter scared of me? And they're like, we think so. Like she had agreed to come on, but then yeah, canceled. So I, I, take a lot of pride in that yeah actually. that she was too scared to come on yeah 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 if i'm going to be scaring people why I, I hope i'm scaring her yeah the other bit from that show that i wanted to ask about just because it somehow has come up again this week is you did a whole monologue about how trump probably has syphilis and that has affected a lot of his um behavior and this week we saw the slow walk down the ramp which raised new questions about his health and people are you know very uh concerned like, about what's him. on that ramp like an obstacle <laughs> yeah. course yeah. why are you walking like uh, that so i've seen more people raising the the uh the syphilis thing that that could be affecting him so do you- well you know the way he stands is a symptom of dementia like yeah. the way he stands with sort his of ass out forward yeah yeah that's a symptom of dementia mm-hmm. so and late stage syphilis is basically tantamount to dementia so it's basically the same thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm standing by my theory that he has late stage syphilis, which has turned into dementia. Yeah, I think, yeah, you, have, you were ahead of the game on that one, too. So I think people. Yeah, look at me. Look at me. <laughs> and finally, syphilis can impair your judgment and memory, which might make someone forget things that they've said in the past. I never said repeal and replace Obamacare. You've all heard my speeches. I never said repeal it and replace it within 64 days. We will be able to immediately repeal and replace Obamacare. I'm very pro-choice. I am pro-life. Hillary Clinton, I think, is a terrific woman. Replenish the Such a nasty trust fund. Don't worry about that baby. I love babies, so. I love babies. I hear that baby crying. I like Actually, I was only kidding. You can get the baby out of here. doctor, so I can't claim Donald Trump has syphilis because of laws. But as the saying goes, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it probably fucked some questionable models in the 80s. So we end every episode by asking comedians, who is a a comedian who has made you laugh the hardest in your life? It could be someone that you've worked with or someone that you've, you know, seen perform. Who's the person that comes to mind that that just really, that makes you laugh? Fortune Feimster makes me laugh a lot. She's the first person that came to mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's pretty funny. Are there any stories Uh, stories with her that that stand out from your experience together? We had a cannabis dinner one night. We did a Chelsea Does series on Netflix Mm -hmm. and we did like a cannabis where I I did, there was one episode where I did drugs called Chelsea mm-hmm. Does Drugs. And we did, and we got really stoned. I'm going to get really 
Hi. <laughs> I got my weed card just for you. You did for this dinner? Yeah, I went to a shady weed place in the valley. <laughs> And my guy was like, tell me your symptoms in two words or less. And they have a list of what's okay symptoms and what's not. I go, uh, headaches. Yeah. Then I go, and? And he goes, no. <laughs> and she at my house, after we went into the kitchen and the four of us were just basically eating a pie with our hands, we were so stoned. I mean, I wasn't right for three days. I woke up yeah. the next day and I was like, I can't film today. I'm like, I couldn't open my eyes. And she was not right for like <laughs> a week. Yeah. And she has no tolerance for that stuff. So she <laughs> was out of control. She kept walking out with like large items from my house, like <laughs> chairs. Yeah, edibles will get you like that. Yeah, I like edibles. Cannabis yeah. infused anything is dangerous, but I do like ed edibles where they're more concentrated. Mm. But I don't like cannabis infused food. Like, I want to be alert. Yeah. Yeah. And especially not a whole meal of it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for, for doing this and, um, congrats on the, on the book and the, and the special. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more footage from, uh, Hello Privilege when that comes out. Yeah. It was nice to see you. Yeah. Good to see you too. Okay. Have a good care. one. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Chelsea Handler for being my guest on The Last Laugh. Her new special, Evolution, is available to stream now on HBO Max. If you're enjoying this podcast, how about giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.